My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. All right, welcome back. I'm excited to have uh, George Cologne as our guest with us this afternoon. Good afternoon, George. Good afternoon. All right, good to see you. I'm also excited to have, uh, instead of Jason Bryant, my usual co-host, uh, the, the Prison Post Policy Hour uh, host, Ken Oliver. Good afternoon. Great to, be, great to be here. Great to see you, George. Absolutely. And just want to jump in how we met George. Uh, the first time the crop organization got to, were able to meet you was through a Zoom call that Ken Oliver um, set up. And I'm just curious a little bit about um, how, how you first came across George and and um, how you met and how we came to have that call. We we were super impressed by the by the conversation and we thought like, man, this guy ought to be the CD, the secretary of CDCR. If he, if he was the secretary of CDCR, <laughs> we could we revolutionize wish. the prison system and we could turn that whole machine into something else where people could get rehabilitated. It could turn into a freedom machine. And um, we really loved your ideas. So we definitely wanted to have you on the show. So I'm grateful that you're here with us today. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm really happy to be here. Great. All right. Uh, interesting. I, I met George, I think, at a checker event maybe about a year ago um, when we were talking about workforce development and kind of trying to decide about uh, the different ways uh, that we can improve workforce development for fair chance hiring. Mm -hmm. um, and we came up with some policy uh, conversations there and some uh, employer development conversations and some talent development conversations. And uh, one of the things that I was impressed with George about is, is while I was busy focusing on the talent aspect, George was like, slow down, Ken, we need to focus on the employer development side. Uh, I think that he had a lot of experience dealing with employers because he's, he's been doing that for several years and he just came across as very knowing and, and very articulate and very warm. And we were instantly connected and uh, I just value his opinion and his advice in, in, in this business uh, and that's how we met. All right. Yeah, I definitely want to come come back to that because in, in in all the years of incarceration and being in these conversations, it's always about for me. And it's always been about up until meeting you and hearing about what you do. It's always been about, well, how can we get guys into jobs, workforce development, getting guys into jobs? But I never heard about the person that actually goes to the to, to the different um, organizations and agencies and um fights for us to be able to be employed there. And uh, that's something that you do. I want to hear about it. But I just want to give you, give you a formal introduction for, for our audio audience and, and uh, tell them a little bit about you. Uh, George spent 17 years working in tech at various startups. He started as a customer service rep, but soon craved more experience and responsibility. As a result, he quickly rose to the ranks, became a leader, a supervisor, performing quality assurance, writing scripts and training manuals, and then eventually performing hiring and training duties account managing and business advising. Two and a half years ago, after much uh, disenchantment with startups, George found his passion working for an Oakland nonprofit, assisting the reentry population and connecting with meaningful employment opportunities. George's position at SF Made encompasses both his experience and his passion. George has also run his own successful side business for the last 20 years, selling collectibles of every sort. So once again, welcome, George. Thank you. All right, so uh, I just want to start off by talking about your, your trip over here. You, you live out in the Bay Area? Yeah, yeah. Came out here from Oakland this morning. Smooth sailing. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yesterday it looked like Armageddon over there in the skies. Can you tell us <laughs> what was that like? We did. It was a, it was a trip. I mean, it was dark all day. We had to have the lights on in the house. Uh, I was telling Ken earlier, um, we have a six-year-old, and he was very unsettled by the whole thing. So we had to have, sit down and have like a science talk with him, explain why this was going on. Uh, thank goodness for KQED and, and having knowledgeable people post uh, intelligent things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, at 12 o'clock, it's like re- totally red outside. Yeah, it was insane yeah very unsettling so what what george what is what exactly do you do uh, what is sf made so sf made is a nonprofit uh that has two real core values the first is to uh, make sure that the manufacturing industry uh, continues to grow thrive and exist in the city of san francisco uh, we have two sister organizations, uh, Bay Area Urban Manufacturing, which covers the East Bay, and uh, Manufacturing San Jose, which covers San Jose. Um, so we assist uh, manufacturers in San Francisco in things like uh, HR services, finding a place to do their business, sourcing materials, um, interacting with the city, uh, legislature, uh, all sorts of things to make sure that the industry continues to stay and grow in San Francisco. And the second piece is connecting our uh, employer members to local workforce partners. So we try to work with all of the local workforce partners throughout the Bay Area. Um, and the intention is our services for our employer members at SF Made are free. We want them to, they're free because we want to encourage our members to hire from our workforce partners. And our workforce partners assist people with all sorts of barriers. Um, but me I, having the come from a, a workforce partner that assists the reentry population, I have a special place in my heart for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the goal is to, uh, create equity and inclusion in the manufacturing industry and, and help, help that thrive and help people get really meaningful jobs, uh, in that industry. That's really cool. How, how, how did you come to have a special place in your heart for reentry? So uh, for two and a half years, I worked for the Center for Employment Opportunities in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a job developer, and I went in cold. I'd, I'd never interacted with that population, um, you know, aside from, like, personal interactions, uh, which were few and far between. And uh, I absolutely fell in love with the work, like, almost immediately. Um, and I wanted, while well, CEO is a good program, um, I wanted to make it better. I wanted to do more for the, for the people that we were serving. And uh, as a job developer, my role was to reach out to the local employers, mm-hmm. uh, explain to them the value of the reentry population, uh, how dedicated, how hardworking, um, how uh, intelligent and how uh, experienced they are, you know, and, and help them understand these are people that not only deserve to work, Right. But um, could be valuable to your company and could be, you know, excellent employees and could change, you know, the way things operate here, you know, for you. Um, and then meeting with the participants on a daily basis and, uh, you know, getting them ready for job interviews and for, uh, uh, you know, kind of learning from them what it is that you want to do. You know, what what can you what are you going to do day in, day out that's actually going to make you happy? Um. I tried to stay stray away from like the dream job idea and more kind of tried to focus on 
practical. You, yeah, practical. And using we, we used something called motivational interviewing to kind okay. of help th- these individuals draw out, you know, from themselves what would what would be satisfactory for them and, and what would work for them in the long run. Yeah, one of the things that I've been noticing is when I was incarcerated, a little 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 sto- little story is the jobs that a lot of us were getting were the jobs where you worked in the gym or you worked in the kitchen or you worked as a porter or as a clerk. And the reason why we would get those kind of jobs is because you had more free time to go to the yard. You had more free time to go to the yard, to work out, to make phone calls or to do your college work or, 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 or whatever you were doing. But then a guy could go 20 years in jobs like that and live the, the good life in prison, you know, so to speak, quote unquote. And, and, and then you come out here and you just, realize you just wasted 20 years and um and i should have been in some type of vocation or i should have been equipping myself in some other way so um what were some of your discoveries um working with reentry? uh when it comes to that point in particular it was the value of transferable skills um i i think that a lot of the people that were coming out that had those sorts of jobs while they were incarcerated believed that that was all that they could do, that they would have to continue down that path. So we heard a lot of the time that they'd want to do back a housework at a hotel or at a restaurant, or, uh, or they'd want to work at a warehouse. Um, uh, so things that were akin to what they were doing while they were incarcerated. Right. And I heard that so often that I would ask them, so what did you learn while you were doing that work? <clears throat> Uh, and I and I would use that information to help them help guide them towards other opportunities that were out there that weren't exactly like what they were doing before, um, and it took a, a pretty significant amount of work to help right. somebody understand that they had more value than what they thought, you know, they could they could do as far as work was concerned. Ken, would you speak about would you speak about that that point that is made that. You know, we, we obviously also work for the crop organization and and some of our ideas about value, also about CEO. Like our, our audience is the family members of loved ones and loved ones of the incarcerated, the in, formerly incarcerated <clears throat> people involved in the criminal justice reform movement, uh, restorative justice movement. What is CEO and, and, and also speak towards the value that many uh, formerly incarcerated people come out and they see themselves sort of like George said, like, well, I can work in a warehouse. I can do basically what I was doing in prison. And the, and the ceiling for what they could do or who they could be seems just like right above their head rather than, um, you know, knowing that there's so much more available that's, uh, that's uh, available to them. Sure. Uh, in reference to CEO, first of all, I love CEO for what they do. Uh, I know a lot of great people okay. at CEO that I'm friends with uh, and who I respect uh, for their line of work, both in policy and in uh, employment opportunities. Uh, One of the things that I experienced when I came home was an expectation of that ceiling by the employment companies, I think. And what I saw was is that typically there wasn't a lot of value placed in human potential in the way that it would be for people who hadn't been in prison. So people who haven't gone to prison can kind of look at the sky and say that their ceiling is, you know, infinite possibility, so to speak, right? Uh, But I think that I saw from some of these organizations that they said, okay, here's a person coming from prison. We're going to put you here at this base level. They don't create a lot of training programs that are high level. 
right? And I don't know if that's a, a, a false narrative that they've told themselves or maybe what they believe. But as you know, inside Solidad, where we met, we focused a lot on the infinite possibility of human potential in right. prison. So our population in prison and many people outside of prison come from broken environments where the ceilings are relatively low in life, right? So if you have conversations with guys in prison, they don't see anything for themselves in many cases past low labor, low wages, right. a little hustling on the side. It's a mindset. It's a mindset because no one's ever told them that they could be more. They've never seen more in some of the environments and, and familial uh, situations that they come from. And so what you see is, like you said, a, a scarcity, poverty, or an impoverished mindset. And, you know, one of the things that me and Ted used to talk about in our entrepreneur and, and business group is the opposite of that, that you had no ceiling, that you were only limited by your own imagination and your own sense of possibility. Uh, so what motivated me in going to a lot of these conferences at Checker, et cetera, and so forth was that why aren't there more talent development programs for people who are ambitious, driven, believe in themselves or want to believe in themselves to get the same type of jobs that are at Google or other places that other people are getting. I mean, right. in, in my mind, like if you show me how to do it, I feel like I can do anything anybody else can do. Right. And I know there are a lot of people that think the same way, both women and men uh, who have felony convictions uh, feel that way. But oftentimes the door is closed to them, both in training opportunity. We're just now getting to the point where we're creating college programs for people that are formerly incarcerated who suffer um, felony convictions. So uh, for me, I thought that there was a hole in the employment landscape mm -hmm. and I wanted to be able to provide a niche market. And that's what I talked to Ted and you all about uh, creating a niche market for people who saw something higher or saw something more in themselves and for their families and give them the opportunity, right? Cause nothing comes easy. You give them the opportunity to pursue that unencumbered and possibly place them in places where they could have a career rather than just a, a yeah, gig, sure. gig economy type of job. Right. Now, I know on, on the way over here, me and you were talking about, and you had some questions for George. I had some questions. Why don't you go ahead and kick it off with, uh, with um, you know, one of the first questions you had for. Sure. Well, Richard alluded to earlier who our audience is, and I think that it would be valuable to talk about and hear from you uh, what the landscape is for employment for people out here, especially people that are unskilled, uh, because what we want women and men to know that are behind the walls of how important it is to start thinking about reskilling or upskilling and, and what the real landscape is for livable wage out here in places like the Bay Area and Los Angeles County, et cetera. The real landscape? The real landscape. Uh, to be able to learn to earn living wages in the Bay Area uh, and come out from incarceration and, and, and get a job where you can earn that, that type of living is, I'm going to say, unfortunately, almost non-existent. Um, and the reason is that we don't have enough employers or enough industries educated uh, on how to navigate hiring people with barriers to employment. Um, we live in a state that's very progressive that has laws in place to support these populations to make sure that they're not neglected. But employers are just either uninformed or, or sometimes outright uh, negligent and, and they, they don't do the things that they need to do. So the, the options 
where you're earning anywhere between 18 and $25 are pretty minimal. Uh, they're usually pretty labor intensive mm-hmm. um, or require some sort of uh, some sort of s- physical skill. You know, construction is a good is a good example where, yes, the the uh, the, la- the unions will hire from the reentry population. But typically those are backbreaking jobs. I mean, do you really, is that really what you want to do to be able to earn a living wage? Do you want to work on a construction site? Do you want to deal with the environment that a construction site brings? Um, And organizations that are intended to assist any uh, population with barriers, but in particular the reentry population, are very focused on on the jobs that seem to have this rotating door of people coming in and out the the wages typically are just above minimum wage maybe a dollar fifty to three dollars more at the most um and they're not geared toward elevating people and and giving them an opportunity to advance and to grow and to learn and to maybe move on to another company with a new set of skills they're either keeping them uh at a at a base salary and having them you know, bust their rears or um, people just give up because it's not, there's no value in the work. Right. Um, and that was, that, that was really disappointing. It was disappointing to see that. And it was, it was um, heartbreaking that it wasn't taken more seriously and people, and people that were on the inside that were seeing this happen, weren't doing anything to try to change it. Um. And that's, that's kind of the reason why Ken and I met is because there were people in these nonprofit organizations that wanted to do better. Um, so many of these organizations work for the same purpose, but they don't integrate with each other. They don't collaborate. And that was to the detriment of the people that we were intending to serve. Uh-huh. George, my, my question is a, a little bit, piggyback on what, on what you shared and what was it like, what is it like going before different organizations or companies and, and advocating for jobs for reentry? What are, what, what are some of the experiences that you've had with that, whether positive or negative? I'm going to, fortunately they were almost always positive. There That's were awesome. very, very few negatives. I, uh, I'll speak to one negative that I had recently um, because it really, it really burned me, but I had a, I was speaking to a potential employer and uh, letting them know, uh, I, you know, I'd gone through the discussion about hiring from, our, from one of our job boards and the importance of hiring individuals with barriers and giving them a, a fair opportunity to work. And his, his immediate response was, well, oh, do, you, do you mean people with c- criminal convictions? And I said, yeah, that's one population that, that needs, you know, this leg up. Uh, well, are, are, you know, are, are you going to insure them? And I was shocked. I was like, you, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I, 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 that wasn't my reaction. I, re- right. I responded in a very professional way and, right. and tried to educate. But that was, it, it's just like, oh my God, you know, are you going to underwrite these people? No. Why, would, why on earth would, would you know, you, you, you're, you're taking the same amount of risk hiring somebody from the rich population as right. you are anybody else. You right. know, there's no, there's no data to suggest that you need to be, they need to be underwritten. For the most part, it was always a positive experience. 
regardless of the outcome, people were willing to listen. Um, and it was very much a sales job. Right. You, know, you, you, you had to beat feet, uh, telephone, email, these Zoom calls. They don't work. You need to get somebody face-to-face, right. uh, you know, shake their hand, um, inform them, uh, help them understand uh, that we're dealing with people, you know, our, uh, as a, as a nation are, we're, we're very much brainwashed, uh, when it comes to thinking of individuals who have been in prison or have been incarcerated for any reason, you know, we, we think the absolute worst of them and the, and the humanity of, of these individuals is completely removed a lot of the time. Right. So you're having these conversations. You have to start at that base. You have to start there. If you don't start there, people aren't going to continue to listen. They're just going to worry about well, what am I getting myself into? What are my coworkers going to experience? Uh, you know, how's our company going to be affected? So you have to bring in that. I found that it was necessary to bring in that humanity first. Right. I work with individuals who uh, have been incarcerated every day is often how I would start the, the conversation and help them connect with the fact that, um, I, I, oh, I never felt unsafe. You know, I didn't say it that way, but I, I would word a conversation to help them understand that. Um, and it always took more than one touch when it was really successful. I would go and meet them for the first time, kind of introduce them to the concept, give them some data, uh, provide them with uh, information from other organizations or, or information about what... Uh, about the ban the box initiative, you know, stuff to inform them as employers. Right. Second touch would be, I have some people who might be able to fill these roles, you know, take a look at their resumes. Let's talk about these individuals and and what they can bring to you. And then the third discussion, uh, if we got that far would often be, you know, let's, let's build a pipeline. You know, you reach out to me, let me know when you have something available so that I can send you, the best candidates that we have for those roles. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't so focused on any particular industry. I was going everywhere. I, I wanted opportunities in every uh, facet of, of employment that we could possibly get into. Right. That sound like a large part of your job was shifting mindsets. It, it had to be. Right. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things, if I can <clears throat> chime in there, is that... Sure. Not only is there the employer development side, but it has always struck me as like this this trifecta of employer narrative shifting, employer development, which is what you were describing, then also being able to bring qualified candidates to the position, and in some cases maybe extremely qualified people to kind of ease or buffer that fear. And then also what we can do on the policy side, right. meaning can we have legislators give more tax incentives or maybe insure people or maybe provide different type of stipends or salary matching type of mechanisms to help ease or provide financial incentives to companies right. to hire what we call fair chance uh, talent. Because, you know, now that you're in the manufacturing field, I'm curious as to if you have somebody that is, a returning citizen and they're highly skilled in manufacturing. And I don't know if you've seen anybody like that, but if you have seen somebody that's highly skilled in manufacturing, do you think that that would make your job easier 
to say, hey, I'm, I just don't want you to take a chance from a philanthropic standpoint, but I'm also bringing you a top top flight machinist mm-hmm. uh, who's extremely skilled in his craft, who's going to bring a, a great value proposition to your company, et cetera. Uh, do you think that helps or does that make your job easier? Have you experienced that? It absolutely helped. Um, I have an excellent example. Um, sure. I, I was, yeah, I was working with a gentleman named Jerry. Uh, Jerry had experience. Uh, what he did while he was incarcerated is he, he made the, the frames for eyeglasses. Mm. Um, so he was working with, um, I wouldn't say advanced machinery. It was probably machinery that was somewhere in the realm of 10 to 15 years old, but advanced for certainly for a prison. Right. Um, so he came out with this skill set, and we, I, I went looking around for opportunities and lo and behold, and this is, I'm, I'm not trying to like build a connection because I work at SF made now, but an opportunity was on SF Made's job board, which right. I had looked at on a weekly basis while I was at CEO. And it was a, with a company called Topology. And um, I sent Jerry's resume to the folks at Topology. They contacted me back within a few days. Uh, this, this individual so- sounds perfect. Um, you know, we love what your organization does. We, you know, we'd love to, to be involved, but, you know, let's, let's talk to Jerry. They met Jerry. They hired Jerry. Uh, Jerry started as a, uh, a production line worker, uh, doing effectively the same thing he was doing while he was incarcerated, uh, but working with much more high-tech uh, machinery and also uh, leveraging his computer skills, which he needed to have in order to do this job. Uh, almost every participant in the CEO program hopefully applies for a job with Caltrans. And the reason that we try to get them to apply for jobs with Caltrans is because those are good jobs with a pension. You have benefits. Um, it's not always the best work, but it's, it's, uh, a fair job with good, with good pay. So Jerry had done that prior to, uh, being employed at topology. He'd been there almost about a year. And finally, Caltrans called him back. And they loved him, too. I mean, his skill set was fantastic. Right. He's just wonderful personality and, and great uh, to work with. They offered him a job. He let Topology know. And Topology was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what, what do they want to give you? You know, let's, let's work this out. <laughs> um, they ended up being able to retain Jerry. Jerry is the supervisor for the production floor now, helps wow. in making the hiring decisions. I wish I had more stories like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it did happen on occasion, and it always had to do with somebody's skill set, having a more advanced skill set. Uh, and having an understanding of technology was always a big part of helping somebody leverage that and, and get a good job. Um, but it, it's a, I still get to work with Jerry on a regular basis. I'm sending people from CEO and from other nonprofits over to some of their job openings now. And they, topology is, to me, like the dream when it comes to an employer understanding the, the value of the people that they're hiring um, and the effect that it has to give somebody a, a real opportunity. They're, they're not doing it because they have to. They're doing it because they want to. Right. And, and, and they're very genuine about that. And I want to get to the point where there's more 
businesses that operate with that mindset. That's awesome. Uh, I think about the story you just told about Jerry and uh, feel free to j- jump in anytime, Ken, because sure, I'm sure. over there. It's kind of hard to look back and forth to know <laughs> I got when you. you're ready to go. I got you. But um, recently I was talking with, with, with uh, my former cellmate in there and he's a guy who has a clerk job, has been in over 20 years and hasn't got any uh, technical training. You know, prison, a lot of people don't know. <laughs> There's no Wi-Fi in there. Mm-hmm. The, the computers are Windows 2003 or 99. Um, it's very difficult. You could be on a waiting list for seven or eight years to get into um, Microsoft um, type of um, training just on how to do, you know, Google, utilize Microsoft Suite. Or, they're very, there's probably 25 people in the class. And, you know, before leaving, I mean, I had a typewriter and that was the, 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 the closest thing I ever used to a computer. They're not, anything's not allowed like that. I mean, they're in the dark ages, truly. But there are, uh, and there are some vocations at, at some prisons, but some of them are so outdated, like lawnmower repair or refrigerator repair, <laughs> refrigerator <laughs> repair, and uh, even like um, auto body. So, 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 what I was telling my being in a, at a reentry facility out here for the first six months when I was released, there was a, a person who came out and had learned different types of welding on the inside. That's probably only. 10 welding jobs per prison. And those guys really don't get that much yard because they're out around the prison doing their job. But now that I think back, that guy went, went into a job at $55 an hour. Right. And he had that skill. And, and my old cellmate is telling me what, what, what's the message? What do I tell people about getting jobs out here? Uh, we have a friend that, um, who was released just uh, recently, maybe a month ago, a lifer who got out 31 years old, brilliant mind, very smart, and the only job that he could he could find out here right now is um, <clears throat> um, uh, working at a, a restaurant or a restaurant. So, um, you know, you said, I wish that we had more Jerry's. You know, I wish that we could create more Jerry's. Uh, what message would you have? You know, it's possible that we can get our, our podcast uh, inside of uh, CDCR. And if you had a message for the guys in there, what message would you have? And and. Uh, I think I want to have, I have another question related to COVID and how that's changed the reentry job market out here. Definitely. Um, the message that I would have to be perfectly honest is to not pigeonhole yourself. So, uh, if, if you are offered opportunities while you're incarcerated to learn new skill sets, to get your hands on different types of machines, to do different types of work, do it and then find what you really enjoy and, and go with that, but explore first. Um, I know that that's limited, right? But it might be because that those limitations shouldn't uh, direct you just in in one thing. You know, you should be open to to everything. the The importance of learning how to use tech it cannot be stressed more. Um, and I know that the prisons don't offer. Right. Uh, the opportunity to do that in the way it should be done. Um, so if, if you can, if, if you explore, you find something you like and you build on that skill set and you're able to build on that skill set, that would be my advice. Uh, it, it takes, um, it takes an understanding of yourself and, and knowing that you can achieve something when you're, when you're released and, and, and the, that those opportunities are out there. If you, um, 
if you focus on one thing and you don't particularly enjoy it, but it gets makes the days pass and 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 you know uh, you know makes you feel like you're contributing. Your the options when you're when you're when you're released are going to be just as limited. <clears throat> um, and it's unfortunate to hear about an individual who has done things to get to a level where they should have you know a, a wealth of opportunities to them, but then you get into where you get released and how long you have to stay there <laughs> right. and what type of opportunities are right. in that area. And usually, uh, you know, certain cities, even in California uh, or counties just don't have the good jobs available. Right. They're already taken. And I don't want to miss the moment. That's one side of the coin, but it sounds like, you know, you, you're in the business of, what about, we, we have a couple of people who work for uh, DRP, they call it and CDCR, Rehabilit Department of Rehabilitative Programming, then I know that a few of them have watched the show. And what's the message for them? I mean, to get out of the dark ages in there and to transition to something where what would what would be ideal from your mindset if you could if you could, you know, like Ken said earlier, we we're talking about it, if you could make a wish and wave a wand and say, look, here's here's what you guys should do, because I'm out here in the market. Here's here's what you could do. Why not do this? Uh, to to uh you mean what kind of skill sets could they pick up? Yeah, what what would what would you offer to the administration or CDCR the ideas um, that what, what what ideas would you give them to implement inside of the uh, system? This this was a discussion that we had the first time that we met, right? And um, it is inexcusable to have people be released from incarceration and have no uh, feel or or knowledge of technology that is inexcusable it is it 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 is a massive gap in providing uh, good opportunities to people who need them so these arguments about well they'll you know they'll use the devices to do this that or the other thing to communicate communicate with people on the outside or or to go to websites they're not supposed to go to my six-year-old was given a, a, com a computer for his school he can't do anything but go to websites that are associated with education. Right, right. They make computer a, a computer manufacturer can do all sorts of things to restrict closed networks. Yeah, all of that exists and it's exist, existed for years. Right. You know, if you're worried about devices disappearing, put tracking stuff on them. I mean, there's there's no reason that this no can't excuse. happen. Yeah, there's no excuse, and that is critical. The there are simple things about uh, knowledge of technology that we take for granted when, when you know, when we don't have this, ex this lived experience that make a massive difference. Stuff like uh, having a professional voicemail message or just a normal voicemail message, um, writing an email, uh, responding in a timely manner, um, it, and then even the basic stuff, like you said, you had a typewriter. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm happy that you were able to learn how to type because this, <laughs> I, you know, that's, it's, it's a, right. it's a good thing to learn. It's an important thing to learn. But if you're not given access to, to technology, how are you supposed to learn that? Uh, we, we constantly had to train participants and CEO on how to use uh, navigation apps, uh, map apps. Sure. Um, and, that's something that could easily be taught. And I don't know that it would take that long either. You know, our, our minds begin to slow down and, 
it, it, it's harder to learn things at a certain age, but that comes actually much later than I think people understand. You're, you're able to, to take in information and to learn and to grow for a pretty large chunk of your life. Yeah. So to hand somebody a device and, and say, you know, work this out, try to figure out how to do this. Let, you know, that trial and error aspect, that's one of the best ways to learn is to, is to fail and then understand what it is that you did wrong and then work through it. Right. And they do this on a, on, you know, on a regular basis. Here's a, a, a couple of phones that are very common. Learn how to use these. Here's a laptop. Learn how to use it. And we'll train you too. That would make such a big difference. If, if, uh, if organizations that were geared toward assisting the reentry population and finding work didn't have to climb that particular hill, uh, I think that there would, there would be a lot more opportunity coming into the pipeline for tech jobs, even for customer service and sales jobs for some of these companies. Uh, and to your point, Richard, the COVID-19 Everything is remote. Right. Right. How are you supposed to work remotely if you don't know how to use a computer? You don't know how to log into a Zoom. It's it's not right. It's it's interesting what you're saying and what Richard mentioned because in my previous work, one of the things that I did is talk to a lot of companies and I was remember a conversation I had with the uh, global head of talent development at Fitbit. And I was in the process of trying to design a program to an apprenticeship program to bring people in formerly incarcerated and give them like two year apprenticeship programs to learn uh, the different uh, skill sets that they used in, inside Fitbit. And as we were having the conversation, it might have been 10 people from Fitbit on the Zoom call. And this guy who was out of Chicago said, well, you know, it sounds like one of the things that you're asking us to do is spend six months or maybe more onboarding people with the basic fundamentals of learning how to send a Gmail, learning how to dial a Zoom call, learning how to do a Google Doc, et cetera, and so forth. And he said that it would be really ideal is if you could get that stuff out of the way while they were in prison. And then when they come out, they would be much more employable. And we and probably others would be much more willing to take a shot if they didn't have to spend so much time, you know, and he didn't want to be disrespectful, but basically he was saying babysitting to get people just up to speed with the fundamentals because no business or company has time to sit around and say, let me show you how to figure out how to do a Gmail or let me figure out how to do this. It's, it's too time consuming to have your employees do all that. And so one of the things that we're highly focused on is getting people up to speed. Uh, and I think it is a travesty that the Department of Corrections in the year 2020, it may have been justified 20 years ago, but in the year 2020, it's safe to say that you can't survive without knowing technology in the world on the global scale, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you live in a, a deep third world country somewhere, but even then, uh, not having internet access, not knowing how to communicate. I mean, these are fundamental things that you need to get into a job market that pays a livable wage. Uh, and I did want to touch on that too, and, and then I'll stop, about the livable wage. Uh, because a lot of people yeah. in prison who've been there for a decade, two decades, three decades, don't have a full understanding of the economy out here and what it takes to survive. And the current landscape is working on an old model, which we hope to break, uh, which is we're going to send people to transitional houses for six months. We're going to send them to CEO or 70 million jobs in one of these other places. Right. We're going to get them in at 
15, 16 bucks an hour at UPS or whatever. Uh, they're not going to have to pay rent at the transition house. And then the 60 day or 30 day mark comes, right? And I get these phone calls from guys and women that are in the transition house and they say, Ken, I'm from LA. Most of my family is moved away and done everything. They paroled me to the Bay Area. I have to get out of the transitional house in 30 days and I'm making 16 bucks an hour throwing mailbags on the back of the UPS truck. Where can I live and what do I do? And for people that aren't familiar with the Bay Area, I mean, for a, a 500 square foot apartment in Oakland, unless you live in deep, deep, deep East Oakland, it's about $2,000 a month or right around there. And it, 500 it, square feet? 500 square mm -hmm. feet, one bedroom, <laughs> 2000 And it's not that different in L.A. County, right? right? And so, you know, the question becomes, are we setting people up to fail if we're not allowing them to earn a livable wage? And then the question becomes, how do we get people to the stage where they can earn a livable wage? And if the Department of Corrections or prison systems across the country aren't equipping people to survive, then the alternative is you're actually equipping people to fail because you're not providing them the tools necessary, right? right. And to George's point, I mean, it, it's so simple to create a closed network, get oh, people yeah. up, to school, uh, uh, up to speed on, on LinkedIn skills, Google Suite skills, Microsoft skills, et cetera, and so forth. And you can do all this a year before a person gets out when they're at a level two prison, et cetera, and prepare them actually for the market that they're entering because the, the prospects to survive in a place like the Bay Area or LA County is daunting uh, for people. Yeah. And so, it, you know, to George's point, we really need to focus on focusing on those skills and that skill development. What is a livable wage in the Bay Area? Uh, well, I know in San Francisco, it's over, it might be $100,000 a year. You have to right. make over $100,000 You have to make over to live in San Francisco. In Oakland, I'm not sure, but I think it might be 60 or 70, maybe a little bit more, maybe even higher. Uh, but I know that when you start breaking down stuff to brass tacks and you talk about rent, you talk about insurance, you talk about car notes, you talk about transportation. I mean, it's, it's expensive. Um, you know, not everybody's blessed to go to work for a nonprofit like I was when I came home and I didn't, I didn't make a lot of money, uh, but I made decent amount compared to other people that got out of prison and I couldn't afford to live by myself in Oakland. So is that the solution? If you're going to stay in this county, you pretty much need to find some, find some roommates real quick. And that's, that's, that's the suggestion that I gave one of my friends is that maybe I can pair you up with other people. But when you look at sustainable models, right, because the goal is not to just get somebody temporary housing. The goal is to how do we get people long-term housing, long-term careers. If the model is we're going to roommate four or five people up together so they can split a house, strangers, right? How sustainable is that when you talk about having wives and families and et cetera and so forth. That's just like a quick fix bandaid that works for maybe six months to a year and hope that no one kills each other or, or they don't burn the house down. Right. right. Uh, so for me, it's always about long-term housing. For me, it's about long-term sustainability when it comes to a career and having people invested in the work that they do. Cause there's a dignity and investment. I think that people make in the work that they do. And you mentioned it earlier, Richard, I'll just, uh, jump back to it real quick is about in prison. You see it in prison guys who work the PIA jobs that pay a dollar 50 an hour. They get up at five in the morning. They work the overtime shifts. They're doing everything they can to make that 70, 80 bucks a month. The guys that make the eight cents an hour in the kitchen, they're doing everything they can to not go. Right. They don't give a damn about the job. They don't care if you fire them. There's no investment, right? There's no incentive 
for the people to say, hey, I really need this, right? And so it's the same way out here on the streets. When people are making 14 bucks an hour and you're 52 years old, you're not heavily invested in getting there on no. time. You're not heavily invested Absolutely. in having relationships with your boss and doing a good job. You're trying to skirt the, <laughs> you're trying to live on the fringes, right? And play the corners. Uh, but when you're making $75,000 a year and you got free lunch and free dinner at the company and you, you got benefits and two or three weeks vacation, now all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm gonna do everything in my power not to, Mess this off. This is the best thing since sliced bread, right? So that, that, that's what we try to focus on here. Earlier, you mentioned uh, ban the box. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so I, actually, at some point, we should defer to, to Ken on this because he was okay. deeply involved in it. What I do want to say about ban the box is that um, from what I've seen, employers misunderstand it or don't follow it. Okay. Um, there's one thing in particular that came up a couple times uh, just over the last few weeks that I noticed. And that was, I was on a call with, um, with a bunch of other nonprofit organizations uh, who assist in, in workforce. And there was an employer on this call who said, if somebody passes a background check, they will get the job. And, I, and the word passes was triggering for me. What do you mean by pass? So I asked, what do you mean by pass? Well, if they have any sort of, if something comes up, we, we, we can't offer them a job. No, that's not how that works. That, they, that That's what Ban the Box is about. You know, this is, you, you offered that person a job. They, they took a background check. They didn't pass. That's not where it ends. You don't say, I'm sorry, you don't get the job now. Right. There are things that you are responsible for doing. And that's written in the, in the legislature for Ban the Box that you, you need to take these steps. It's your responsibility to do this. And I mentioned Nature Time Nature to three employers in the last month. And all of them said, what's that? I don't know what that is. This is part of the, the employer education thing that we were talking about. We, you know, we touched on a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, it is the, your responsibility as an employer that if, se if something comes up in a seven-year background check, I want to get back to that too. <laughs> <laughs> if something comes up in a seven-year background check, <clears throat> It is your responsibility to do a nature time nature assessment. So you have to consider the nature of the crime, consider the time that has passed since it was since the conviction, and uh, match it to the nature of the work that they will be doing. So okay. if somebody went to, uh, it was convicted of ha having one too many DUIs, all right, and, and they went to jail for it, um, maybe they're not right for a driving job. Okay, I could see an employer being, no, we don't want to do that right now. It's, you know, it, it just doesn't work for us. If somebody was selling drugs and, and, you know, they got convicted of that and they wanted to have a driving job, how does that conflict? They don't right. conflict. The two things don't, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's oil and water. Like they separate. Especially if the convictions 20 some years ago or. Yeah. And then that comes into play over too. Seven. Yeah. So that's the, that's the piece that really drives me crazy is the time sensitivity, the time sensitivity. So some of these background check companies, instead of using the conviction date, they use the release date. Mm -hmm. So the release date can be a month ago. It could right. be a year ago, right? but they're going to show convictions from all the way back when this person that they're, that they're in the background check against may not have committed a crime in the last seven years. Right, so it right. shouldn't be there. The employers get their hands on that, and instead of analyzing it and saying, 
because it, it'll clearly show that it's a release date, not a conviction date, and thinking to themselves, well, this isn't right, and, you know, calling their, the, whatever background check company they use and explaining, you know, this, this, we shouldn't have seen this, you know, they just take it for what it's worth, and they, and they ignore the, the, everything that the Ban the Box initiative was supposed to do and, and, and intended for. Um, yeah, it, that part was something that we had to deal with on a regular basis. Lots of writing letters and, and, you know, preparing our participants for that kind of, that disappointment that comes along with it. You know, we had form letters ready to go for you didn't do nature time nature. You know, I know you didn't because if you did, you wouldn't be declining the job offer to this individual. Right. Right. Well, I think that, I think that's an important point. You know, for those of you who don't know the official name of Ban the Box, it's the Fair Chance Act. It was passed in 2018 by the legislature in California. Uh, and basically what that law said was is that employers were not allowed to, A, have a felony box on an application. Okay. Or B, ask you about any felony convictions until after they made the job offer, which is, as George mentioned, and then if they do make a job offer and do a background check and find out that you have a felony conviction, there's the uh, nature time nature test that's supposed to happen. Uh, the law is only a year and a half old. And so uh, to George's point, we've talked about it a lot today on the show. There's a big narrative and education component uh, that we as a community need to have. And it's important for the community to invest in holding employers accountable and holding ourselves in the community accountable because the alternative to some of these things that we're talking about today is actually pushing people into things like the underground economy and and having people make decisions based on desperation. And what happens when we make make people or we try to force people into those situations, people reach and it causes the recidivism rate to continue to be high, which has been high in California for the past 40 years. Uh, And then that may not mean a lot to a whole lot of people, but when you look at the budget for corrections, and policing in California. I mean, we're running over a $35 billion tab for law enforcement and corrections in California. I mean, it's on the verge of being a police state at at a certain point. Uh, So I think that as a community, we should be more invested in human potential uh, and the best in people rather than the worst in people. And and ban the box or the the Fair Chance Act is just one of the components, but we have a lot of work to do, Richard. Speaking about the best in people, I heard you guys use that, that term, uh, fair chance talent. And um, you know, maybe it was called something else before, but would you speak to that? I think part of our show is not only informing, but inspiring, but also educating. You know, I've never heard that, that term before, you know, probably because I was in prison for all that time and there wasn't much talk about fair chance in there. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm, I'm adverse to the word chance, and I'll explain why. All right, great. I went to an event where the intention was for these employers in San Francisco, most of them tech companies, to meet individuals from the reentry population who were skilled to do the work that they were uh, employing for. And uh, the word chance was getting thrown around all night, fair chance, fair chance, fair chance. And this woman said, you know, when I think of chance, I think of gambling. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want people to to think that they're taking a gamble they're taking a risk i want them to know that they're giving somebody an opportunity 
and that they're giving themselves an opportunity too as an employer. Right. So I immediately went back to work the next day and I, and I said, we got we to gotta scrub chance. Like I, I want to scrub chance. And I mentioned it to uh, a, a wonderful uh, program participant uh, at CEO and somebody who's gone on uh, to impact multiple lives. Uh, uh, she's, uh, her name is Betty McKay. She, she has become an advocate for the ranching population. She's become an advocate for, for people who are currently incarcerated. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say she always has been, but now her voice reaches more people and she's able to have more sure. impact. Um, but I mentioned this to her and she took it and flew with it. And I love it. And right. she, you know, and she has been changing people's minds um, and using new words. And I think that has, uh, it's a very important thing to consider. Uh, when you hear somebody tell you that a word has a meaning to them and you, you start asking other people, what do you think when you hear chance? Just chance. Um, you, you will get people who say, uh, well, it, it means you're, that you're, that you're uh, you know, you're trying something or you're, or you're giving somebody a shot. Right. But I heard way too often, oh, it's like, it's like a risk, you know, like, I'm going to take a chance on this, but I'm not too sure about it. So it was important right. for us to try to change the wording and, and help people understand that it's not a chance. It's an opportunity. Language is so important. Right. We, we talk about language all the time, humanizing language. I think that's very humanizing, uh, changing the narrative from chances to opportunity, because that's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, and for some people, it's a, it's a first chance or a first opportunity rather than even a second chance or opportunity, depending on, on what you prefer. Uh because opportunity uh, has been denied mm -hmm. so many different communities, especially communities of color, not only in California, but nationwide. And so, you know, leveling the playing field and providing those type of opportunities is absolutely imperative. And you mentioned that, you know, those who, that 8 million Californians, I mean, I think there's 40 million in the state, 8 million have a felony conviction. Absolutely. And what a lot of people don't know is 70 million people, I believe in the United States, right, George, have felony or criminal convictions, which is about a third of the workforce. And so when you talk about uh, businesses, bottom lines, right, for employers, I mean, it starts to become a point, can you afford to X out off the top one third of the workforce, especially when you consider some of the, no. va some of the value that's brought by people that have suffered a mistake in their lives. And we shouldn't, as a community, as a society, shouldn't be defining people on a single moment in time or two moments in time uh, in a person's life, because I think everybody has made mistakes, some to varying degrees different than others. Uh, but I think that when you talk about 70 million people, 8 million in California, that's a tremendous number. Yeah. Uh, and we need, we need to do better at creating opportunities for people to, who want to do the right thing. we got a few more minutes with George. Uh, well, what, what, what else do you think that, um, that, that we could ask or, uh, or bring up that George could inform our audience about reentry or SF made or anything? Well, I think, I think an important ending point would be to talk about COVID and the way that it's affected the workforce. You touched on it a little bit, but I want to just take a little bit deeper dive into it because one of the things we see even in the manufacturing field is that a lot of the jobs are remote now. And so the question becomes, should we be focusing on teaching people skills and including how to work remotely? By themselves because that takes a special discipline that's a whole new industry right sure learning is. how to work at the house without getting sidetracked and, and all the rest of that and then learning how to separate work from 
the living environment because I've had that problem myself where sometimes I'm doing emails 11 or 12 o'clock at night, yep. two in the morning. I'm over here at six in the morning. I mean, those aren't my work hours, right? right. <laughs> but I'm working, you know, cause it's hard to separate, you know, those lines. And so what advice would you have to people? Because working remotely is so new. Uh, and we see industries, especially in San Francisco and Silicon Valley saying that this may be permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do as a population uh, reentry and otherwise to, better prepare ourselves for what may be to come over the next two to three years, four years, because some of this stuff may be permanent. Yeah. Um, When it comes to the, I'm going to use a word that's been thrown around a lot lately. When it comes to the uh, tech industry, being able to pivot and have everybody work from home, it's because they're built from a workforce that understands technology. Right. So that gap again comes into play. Um, The, the manufacturing industry is interesting. Um, it's it's a bit of an outlier, really. Uh, it requires people to be on site and to work on site. Um, there are people that work in manufacturing industry that can work from home. You know, maybe they 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 work in the office, or maybe they're doing uh, uh, computer assisted design or something like that, where you know they can work on a computer and they don't have to be uh, on a on a factory floor or on a in a shop or at a bakery. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting in the manufacturing side to see that, uh, it's in it, they are essential businesses and they require people who are skilled to be able to, to come to work every day. Um, the other challenges to Ken, to your point, um, about working from home, uh, the discipline that is required, not only in doing your work at all but doing it when it's supposed to be done and not doing it when you're, when you don't have to be, um, being able to enjoy your home and your family, your surroundings and not make it an office. That's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of time to be able to adapt to that. And again, the tech industry has developed people to do that. They let a, a lot of these larger companies like Dropbox or Facebook, they let people work from home a couple times a week, uh, or if they want to, you know, they can just ask. So they've already adapted to this idea. Right. If you're doing a, wor- a job where you have to be on site all the time, the concept of working from home becomes uh, so foreign that if you're given the opportunity to do it, you're either going to have somebody hovering over you from who knows where, making sure that you're doing everything at the time that you're supposed to be doing it and that you're, connected and that you're, you know, that you can answer an email right away or that you can answer the phone right away. And, uh, that leads back to this feeling of, uh, of being micromanaged. Mm. And, um, I have to say with, with a fair amount of certainty that a, a good amount of the, the individuals that I worked with that were incarcerated, micromanaging is not the business. <laughs> like they want nothing to do with somebody. Hovering I, se- I over. second that. Yeah. Like that. If, if somebody's over your shoulder telling you what to do and making right. sure you're doing everything right. Uh, uh-uh, that doesn't fly. Okay. Um, so it, it takes two things. It takes number one, that connection to technology and understanding it. And, um, now any programs that are developing, um, uh, the, the currently incarcerated for the workforce, need to introduce the concept of, of being self-reliant, uh, being responsible uh, in your work uh, so that you can be prepared for the idea of having to, to work somewhere that's not at, at, a, at a site. Um, yeah. 
and it's tricky. It, it's not, it, I've been very fortunate that I, I used to had multiple jobs where I got to work from home. So doing it now, I'm fine. Right. But I know other people that are struggling for any number of reasons. They have children, uh, you know, they have other responsibilities. So it's, it's, it's not easy. Just in, in just in the, in the name of hope and optimism, George, can you give us an outlook in, from a manufacturing perspective? Because, you know, we focus a lot on tech. We're familiar with the tech landscape and, and what it may take. But I'm curious about what are some of the specific tracks that you would tell people reentering the community that they should learn as far as skill development for manufacturing? I'd like to know maybe two or three to say, you know what, in the next three to five years, if you can learn how to do this, this, and this, you're going to make a lot of money and be in demand. Mm-hmm. Do you have any of those in the manufacturing field that you can tell us about? Definitely. Uh, learn, so advanced manufacturing. So machines that are, that are in, uh, programmed by a human being to, to do very specific tasks. Um, in particular, uh, 3D printing mm-hmm. and, uh, and learning how to do CAD, computer-assisted design. Sure. Um, and uh, CNC machining. Oh, my gosh, CNC machining. So, and I've heard that they have that in there. They, yeah, we, uh, SF Made has a training program called the Advanced Advanced Manufacturing Training Program. Twelve weeks teaches you on either three D printing or CNC machining. We're connecting with the employers in the Bay Area that hire for those sorts of jobs, and they they run the gamut. There's closet companies use that tech. Dent, dentists use that tech to make wow. uh, you know stuff that you, that uh, is going to help your teeth grow straight or is going to you know put an implant in there. So there's all sorts of industries to get into if you have these skills uh, in, in CNC machining and, and 3D printing. Those two in particular, I think, would be very worthwhile for people to right. learn. And I think those are things that could be trained inside the prisons, too. Oh, they are. Like, right. No doubt about it. Most definitely. Absolutely. George, um, sounds like, you know, in the real estate business, they say location, location, location. For reentry, what I get is uh, tech, 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 technology, technology, technology. And... Uh, we're definitely going to uh, take your thoughts and share them with some people in DRP that, that, uh, that could make a difference, that could consider change. We need uh, mass transformation there. I thank you for coming on the Prison Post today and sharing with us. And we'd love to have you come again sometime. I would love to. Thank you both very much for having me. And thank you for the hard work that you've been doing and that you're continuing to do. Absolutely. It's, it's, it will change eventually if we keep just poking at it. <laughs> we appreciate right. you, George. It was good <laughs> yeah. seeing you again. Thank you, George. You guys too. All right. All right. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.